1: Welcome to Practical Living with Dale O'Shield, Senior Pastor of Church of the Redeemer in Maryland. We pray that through this message, you will learn how to apply God's Word and truth to your life. Stay with us as we discover God's truths that will transform us.
0: God is a God who actually answers household prayers, that God wants to respond to the prayers that are offered in your house. I would imagine that most of us here have had times and situations where we needed God to show up and work a miracle. In a few moments, I'm going to talk more specifically about miracles, God intervening in our lives in supernatural ways. But what I want to say right now to you is this, if you're going to experience God's miracle working power, God's handiwork in your house, you need to become a house of prayer because God responds to people who pray. God works in people and in houses where there's an atmosphere of prayer, and God wants you to create at your address, he wants you to create a house of prayer. If your house to be a house of prayer, there's certain things that you must do. You must make the choice to say, we are a praying house. Our house is going to be a place where we consistently go to God, because you will never have a perfect house, but you can have a praying house And the more that you have a praying house, the more perfect your house will be. There's an old statement that says, the family that prays together stays together. There are a lot of different things that can tear families apart. We all understand that. It's the reality of today's world. But I will tell you, it's far more likely that your family is going to be strong and make it if you've learned how to talk to God together in your house. Your house needs to be a house of prayer. And this is not complicated. It's not something that's beyond our capacity to do. And this kind of household is mentioned numerous times in the Bible. Let me give you a few examples of this. Let me take you first to the example of Abraham. Most of us know a bit of the story of Abraham. Abraham was called by God from a a place called Ur of the Chaldees, and he was told to go to the land of Canaan. And in the land of Canaan, God says, I'm going to raise up a nation, even though Abraham at that time did not have any children. God said, "I'm I'm going to give you fruitfulness. You're going to be a fruitful nation. And this is going to be your land, the land of Canaan, the land of promise will belong to your nation in the years to come. And so Abraham first goes to Canaan and he begins to walk around the land of Canaan. One thing that you will note about Abraham when he first went to the promised land is that many of the places where he would walk and he would take his family, he would stop and build an altar. So he'd build an altar there, and they would worship. The family would worship together. It would be marked by a pile of stones or some kind of memorial. And there, Abraham would say, this is our altar to God, that they would go back and visit from time to time. And then they would go on to another place in the journey in their promised land and build another altar. An altar represents a place of prayer. And so everywhere that Abraham went and stopped for a bit, he would also create an environment of prayer. His family understood prayer. It's illustrated to us in Genesis chapter 18 because God had this to say about Abraham. At a time when Abraham's nephew Lot was in trouble and he was going to need someone to rescue him, God said this about Abraham and may it be said of us as well. Genesis 18 verse 19, I chose him and he will instruct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what. He promised him. God said, I know something about Abraham. I know that he's the kind of man who instructs his children in the way of God, not just by word, but also by example. And I know Abraham, I know that he will command or instruct his household to follow after God me. And so we see of Abraham that he was known as a man of prayer, a man that created an environment of prayer that goes on in the same chapter to talk about when Abraham even prayed for Lot and prayed for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He asked God, God, God was intent upon destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham prayed a prayer, God, if there are 50 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare the city and God couldn't find 50, and he says, How about 45? And he goes through this whole process all the way down to 10. And Abraham is an intercessor. He prays for people, he is a praying man. He has a house of prayer. Another example is in the New Testament a man, young man, by the name of Timothy. Timothy was a and a helper to the apostle Paul, a protege of Paul, the apostle. And he traveled with him in many different places. And he was finally raised up to become one of the central pastors of the New Testament early church because Timothy learned the ways of God from Paul, the apostle. But one of the things that you note about Timothy is that Timothy was able to move into his calling because he was raised in an environment of prayer. He was raised in a house of prayer. Paul even comments on this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. As Paul is writing to Timothy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, As I think of your strong faith, Timothy, that was passed down through your family line. In other words, the faith you have didn't just happen in you. It got passed down through your family line. It began with your grandmother, Lois, who passed it on to your dear mother, Eunice. And it's clear that you too are following in the footsteps of their godly example. Paul says, Timothy, you are where you are today because you, you had a praying grandmother and you had a praying mother and your praying grandmother and your praying mother has brought you now to the kind of faith that you have in your life. Timothy, you were raised in a house of prayer. You're raised in a house of prayer. Let me ask you, is your house a house of prayer? Joshua understood this. Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land after Moses died. He had this great responsibility of somehow getting God's people into the land of promise and helping them conquer the enemies and settle into their territory by tribes. He had all this responsibility, and he does this wonderful work and scatters a lot of the enemies and drives them out. He comes to the end of his life, and he calls all the leaders of Israel together to give them one last sermon. One last message, his farewell address. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, we have the farewell address of Joshua. He's served many years now, and notice what he says. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates as were false gods, or the gods of the Amorites, which again were false gods in whose land you're living. But as for me and my What's the word there? Household, read the rest with me. We will serve the Lord. Joshua says to all the leaders of Israel, you've got to choose who you're going to serve. You can choose to serve the the gods beyond the euphrates river all those false gods from babylon you can you can choose to worship them and you can choose to worship the gods of the amorites we've been driving them out but you can make their gods your gods again false gods idols but as for me and my house for as for me and my household as for me and all that i have responsibility for as for me and all that i'm building as for me and all that i am as for me and my house we've made a determination we will serve the Lord. And part of serving God was to create an environment of prayer, an environment of relationship with God. Is your house, is your house a house of prayer? Here's your second thing today because it builds on the first. When your house is a house of prayer and to remember that God answers prayers in a household, the second thing becomes true that God then does household miracles. God is a miracle working God. The Bible, without any question, from cover to gov- cover, from Genesis to Revelation, there's story after story after story of God doing miracles, of God doing what we refer to as the supernatural. Let me explain what a miracle is. A miracle is when you have a problem, a situation, a challenge, a circumstance that goes beyond the natural ability to solve it. You can't bring any natural resources to fix it. You can't bring natural resources or natural reasoning to resolve it. You need something beyond the natural. And then God steps in, and when God steps in, he works it out in a way that only he can work out, and that is called supernatural, okay? It's above and beyond what's natural. So the only way you can say this happened was the fingerprints of God are all over it, that God did this because it couldn't have happened any other way. We're not smart enough to do this. We don't have the reasoning uh, capacity to do this. We don't have the ability or the resources to do this, but God did it. That is a miracle. Is a something that goes beyond the natural, supernatural. And the good news is that God does this kind of work still today. God is still in the miracle working business today. Very clear. Notice what the scripture says in Luke 1:37. For nothing is impossible with God. Nothing, no thing, nothing is impossible with God. Mark 10, 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. Read the rest with me. All things are possible with God. Did you hear that? Jesus said, With man this is impossible, but but not with God. All things are possible with God. God speaks of this aspect of His nature in Jeremiah 32, verse 27, through the prophet Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? That's a rhetorical question, and the obvious answer is no. Nothing is too hard for God. With God, nothing is impossible, and nothing is too hard. Matthew chapter 8. The story I'm about to read takes place in a little fishing village northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's called Capernaum. Peter lived in Capernaum. Peter had a house in Capernaum. Jesus made that his hometown during his earthly Galilean ministry. There was a day that Jesus and his disciples had been in the synagogue in Capernaum and After they'd finished their worship service there in the synagogue, and Jesus had cast out a demon there in that particular synagogue, they left the synagogue, and if you go with me there today, I can take you just a few walking, just less than than, than maybe even a quarter of a mile away from that synagogue to where Peter's house was. It's still marked today as being the place where Peter lived. And so Jesus went with Peter to Peter's house because there was a problem at Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law was sick and dying with a fever. She was severely ill. And Peter says, Jesus, I need you to come to my house. I need you to show up at my house. I've got a problem at my house. Verse number 14, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. Where did those miracles happen? They didn't happen in the church house. They happened in Peter's house. A miracle at Peter's house. Can I give you one more story today? Just to nail it home for you, just to remind you that Jesus wants to do a work, a miracle at your house. The next story takes place at a place called Joppa. Joppa is just south of modern-day Tel Aviv, you might know it as Jaffa, Jaffa, Jaffa. Peter was there, and there was a lady there in the church in Jaffa who was very sick and ultimately died. Her name was Tabitha. And so the ladies who were there with her, being concerned about the fact that now she had died, and she was such a great influence upon the church, they wanted to see her raised from the dead. And so they take her to an upstairs room in the house, in her house. We're not talking about the church house, we're talking about Tabitha's house, okay? See again, let me say it God will work in the church house, but He wants to work in your house. And so he take, they take Tabitha up to this room and they lay her out on a bed there and notice now what happens. Peter went with them, or excuse me, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha who was always doing good, good and helping the poor. She became sick and died and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room, the room obviously in her house. Peter went with them and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed, turning toward the dead woman. He said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up he took her by the hand and helped her to her feet then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive where did the miracle happen? it happened in Tabitha's house Peter's mother-in-law was healed in a house Jairus' daughter was healed at his house Tabitha was raised from the dead in a house the Lord in each of these situations showed up in somebody's house and did something Dear ones, hear me today. When God shows up in your house, he always shows out in your house. When he shows up in your house, he always does things in your house that marks the fact that he's been there and he's done something for you. There's a miracle waiting for you in your house. So how does it happen? How do we welcome Jesus into our house? Let me walk you through this fairly quickly. I've got about 10 minutes here, so we're going to do this very, very quickly. Number one, you've got to make sure that you're asking God to come to your house. You've got to make sure that your needs are known to God. You need to be a person of prayer. I mentioned it a moment ago. I want to highlight it again. You need to take your big problems to God in prayer and your small problems to God in prayer. You need to take everything to God in prayer. There's not a single thing that you, get, you don't need to pray about. And when you have a problem, especially in your life, you need to make God your first court of appeal before you call somebody else, you call God. That when your kids get sick, the first one you call on is Dr. Jesus. I'm not saying you shouldn't call the doctor, doctor too. But you might be on the way to the doctor's office and you're calling on Dr. Jesus as you're going to the human physician, you're calling on the heavenly physician, okay? And this whole idea of bringing Jesus into everything that you do when you have a financial problem, instead of picking up the phone and calling everybody you know and asking for a loan, okay, you say, Dr. Jesus, financial advisor Jesus, Jesus who meets every need according to my riches and glory, I'm calling on you first to meet the need. I have a lot more month than I have money right now. And I'm asking you to help me to deal with that shortfall, and Jesus knows how to help you. He might guide you and usually will guide you to some very practical things that you will need to do. But it starts with him. Call upon him. Ask God. Make him your first court of appeal. Then, second of all, I need to stand in and stand with faith. What does that mean? It means now that I've asked God for this miracle, I've asked God to help me with this problem, I've presented it to him. Now I'm going to take a stand. In faith and to stand with faith. What, is it, what does this mean? To stand in or with faith is simple. It's not complex. A lot of folks say, well, I don't know if I have enough faith. You do. Okay, You already have enough. You don't need a lot of faith to see God work. Because first of all, you don't have to make something happen. Faith is a simple belief. That's all it is. Okay? And you already have faith. Every person here today, faith already exists inside of you. You would not be in this room today if you did not already have faith. You wouldn't be here. And you demonstrate faith every day of your life. You demonstrated it a few moments ago. As I've told you, this example, I've used it many times, and I think it's perhaps the easiest example to use. When we ask you to sit down a few moments ago, every one of you sat down. You didn't stop for a moment and worry as to whether your chair was going to hold you up. You didn't say, oh, I'm not sitting down. I don't know if that chair can hold me up. You didn't put your foot up and to test it out. You didn't watch somebody else and see if they're going to fall before you did. You just sat down. What was that? It was, you had the confidence that that chair was going to hold you up. That is faith. You have faith. Okay, But faith is all about having a confidence in something beyond just the natural. Having a confidence in God. That God has promises for you that you can actually put your faith in. So let me walk you through this whole concept of the promises of God and how this works in your life. And I've gotten some, got some things there for you that will help you on your notes. And I'll try to walk you through this very quickly. To have confidence in the promises of God starts with knowing the promises. You can't have confidence in something if you don't know it, right? If you don't know the promise of God for your life, you can't claim the promise of God for your life. And here's what I want you to see today. For every problem in your life, listen, for every problem in your life, there's a promise of God that correlates with your problem. Whatever your problem is, there's something that God has to say about your problem that is a promise from Him. Notice what we find here in Scripture in Psalm 119, verse 148 My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. I want to know your promise. Then you believe God's promises. I know what God said, now I'm going to believe it. Joshua said of God's promises in Joshua twenty one, forty five, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. The psalmist, again, in Psalm 119, verse 140, your promises have been thoroughly tested and your servant loves them. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 19 and 20, for Jesus Christ, listen closely, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He doesn't waver back and forth. He's the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes, and through Christ our Amen, which means yes, ascends to God for His glory. What does that mean, Paul? What are you saying? What means this? It means that every promise in this book, called the Bible, when Jesus died on the cross, He secured that promise for you and me. And He said, "Yep, that's a promise for my people. That's a promise for my children." And He waits for us to say yes to the promise that God has given. That's the next thing. You claim the promise of God. They claim the promise of God. You say this promise now is mine. I believe what you said, God. I know your promise. I see how this promised. If I have a need in my life, I know Philippians four nineteen. for my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So I have a financial need. I have a... Spiritual promise, I believe that promise, and now I claim it. God, I thank you that this is real for me. It's not just something for somebody else. It's something for me. It is for my life. I claim it as my promise from you. And you grab hold of it, and you make it yours. It is yours. You claim it. And then we rest in God's promise. Now, God, I know what you said. I'm going to rest in you. The Bible speaks of a rest that comes in Hebrews chapter 4. When we use our faith in god isaiah twenty six three says you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you, so that trust and rest, and then you wait on God's promise. see God's promise when God promises you something, he promises you on his timetable, not yours, right right, and God always knows the right timing, okay so just remind you of something, when you claim a promise from God, don't tell him when it's going to happen and don't try to tell him how it's going to happen. So to trust God's promise is to say, God, I trust you whenever you want to do it and whatever way you want to do it and whatever box it comes in is okay. I'm not going to tell you how to wrap it up for me. I'm just going to tell you that when it's right, I know you'll bring it to me, and, and, and whatever manner you want to bring it to me, I know that I can trust you, and so I'm just going to wait upon you, God, to deliver on your promises. Psalm 130, verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope, so you wait on him. Read Matthew 7, 11 with me. Let's read together. If you do, if you then, read with me, if you then... Though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who, who what? Ask him. Read James 4, 2 with me. You do not have because you do not ask God. The word that appears in both of those passages is the word ask. You've got to ask, okay? You've got to ask. Here's the last word here. You've got to keep on keep an atmosphere of worship, gratitude, and praise going on. The atmosphere of your house needs to be an atmosphere of worship and praise and thanksgiving to God because that invites the presence of God to work in your house. Let's conclude by reading Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Very important instructions. One of my favorite verses, passages in the New Testament from this particular uh, rendering, living Bible. Are you ready? Would you read with me? Don't worry about anything Instead, pray about everything. Tell God your needs and don't forget to thank Him for His answers. Let's stop us. Hit the pause button right there for a moment. Paul says, right, Timothy, excuse me, uh, Philippians, Church of the Redeemer, saints of God, those that are gathered here on this morning, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Don't give your time to worry. Instead, give your time to prayer. Tell God your needs. So Paul says, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Because worry really is useless. Prayer is productive. Worry is not going to get you anything. But what I would say to you is this. If you pray, you don't need to worry. If you don't pray, you might need to worry, okay? But prayer and worry don't go together because really your worry list ought to become your prayer list, okay? That's what you're praying about. And so Paul says, don't worry about anything, instead, pray about everything. Tell God your needs, and then notice what he says next. And don't, what does it say? Don't forget. Now, when you tell somebody don't forget, why do you tell people don't forget? Because they're likely to forget. When your kids are going out in the morning, don't forget your lunch. Why? Because they're likely to forget their lunch. Okay. So you say don't forget based upon things that people are likely to forget. Okay? So Paul says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God your needs and don't forget to thank Him for His answers. What do we usually forget to do? We usually forget to thank Him for His answers. Now, by the way, notice this: you're thanking for His answers most of the time comes before you get the answer. Did you hear what I said? You don't have to wait till you have it to say thank you for it. Okay? Because you're, you're living your life on a promise okay, from God that you're sure will be fulfilled in your life.
1: Perhaps as you have been listening to today's broadcast, you felt a stirring in your heart, something that reminded you that you need to get something right in your life with God. If you would like more information, please visit our website at church-redeemer.org. May God bless you and make you a blessing.